The word of God to which we call your attention this evening is recorded in Romans 1, verse 16. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The reason for the little word for in our text, beloved, is undoubtedly to be found in the preceding context. And I can state that very briefly and therefore be very brief as far as my introduction is concerned. The Apostle wants to assure the members of the church at Rome that the reason that he has not come to them so far is not because he is ashamed to come to that great worldly city of Rome. In fact, he tells them in the preceding that he has a longing, a desire to come to them and that he has often attempted in the past to come to them and that the reason that he did not come to them was the fact that the Lord did not permit him. But let no one think that because Rome was such a great and mighty city, because there were to be found the philosophers and the scholars of the age and the seat of all worldly power, that there was any fear in the heart of the apostle or that he was in any way ashamed of that gospel of Jesus Christ, he is, in fact, eager to go to Rome, and he hopes to be able to go to Rome and to go beyond Rome, even into Spain, that he may proclaim the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And that is really an understatement. For if the apostle had spoken the truth, in the positive way, fully, he would have said, I glory in that gospel of Jesus Christ, and I glory in the proclamation of that gospel, and I would glory also in proclaiming it in Rome. For that gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation, unto everyone that believeth. We would call your attention to that for a few moments this evening, to that fact, the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And notice three things. In the first place, a powerful gospel. In the second place, a needy world. And in the third place, a confident, unashamed preacher. The word gospel, beloved, means literally good news or glad tidings. It is literally translated that way in Luke 2, the 10th verse, where at the time of the birth of Christ, the angel appears to the shepherds and says to them, Fear not. 
For I bring you good tidings of great joy. Good tidings of great joy. And now in the original we read the same word that we have in our text, only the verb instead of the noun. So that it literally means proclaiming the gospel. And the angel would therefore say, Fear not, before I preach to you the gospel of great joy. The gospel is therefore glad tidings or good news. And the question arises, good news about what? Good news about salvation. That lies in the very nature of the case, as far as the text is concerned. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is in that very gospel that God speaks concerning salvation. And it is through that very gospel that God works salvation. And so we may say that the gospel is the good news which God gives concerning salvation. In the Old Testament, that gospel assumed the form of a promise. A promise concerning salvation. The salvation as an actual reality. As actually realized and established upon its basis of righteousness did not yet exist in the Old Testament. That does not mean that the Old Testament saint was not saved. He was saved. He was saved in hope. He was saved by faith in the promise. He saw the promise, so we read of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They saw the promise afar off, and they believed. And in that faith, they were saved. Before God had promised that he would realize salvation. God had given that promise in the very protevangel at the time of man's fall. When he had said that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And when he had proclaimed the fact that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God had proclaimed that promise throughout the old dispensation by means of his prophets. And in proclaiming that promise, God proclaimed the gospel. When that promise was proclaimed in the old dispensation, that promise concerning salvation, the gospel was proclaimed. But the realization and the fulfillment of that promise, the actual salvation as historical reality, waited for the fullness of time when Christ would come in whom God would fulfill his promises. And so, in the new dispensation, the gospel is, of course, much richer and much 
fuller. The Old Testament good news was the good news concerning what God was going to do with a view to salvation. But in the New Dispensation, the good news is the good news concerning that which God has done, that which God does, is doing, and will do with a view to salvation. It is the proclamation of the fulfillment of God's promise of the realization of the promises of God. So that the gospel proclaims that salvation is a reality. There is salvation. It is real now. There is forgiveness of sins. The wrath of God has been borne. And God's justice has been satisfied, and his law has been fulfilled. Atonement and reconciliation have been made. And God justifies the ungodly and receives sinners and assures them of forgiveness of peace and of everlasting life. And because all this is realized in Christ, the gospel is called the gospel of Christ. The scripture speaks of the gospel in many different ways. Oftentimes it simply speaks of the gospel without any further specification. Sometimes it speaks of the gospel of God, the gospel of God's Son, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of peace, and so on. It's always the very same gospel with the very same content, but viewed from a particular aspect. But most often you will find that Scripture speaks of the gospel as the gospel of Christ or the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is, beloved, that Christ is the very heart of the gospel. The gospel concerns Christ. He, in all his fullness and in all his riches, is the contents, essentially, the contents of the gospel. He is the center of God's promises. The central fulfillment the essential fulfillment of all the promises of God concerning salvation. He is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, according to the flesh, the Son of God, the incarnated Word of God, 
He is, according to his name, Jesus, in himself, the very salvation of Jehovah. He is salvation in himself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is, he is the resurrection and the life. He is that. All of salvation is concentrated in that Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's all in him. And the good news of the gospel, which is the good news concerning salvation, is the good news concerning salvation as it is in him. Realized by him. Fulfilled in him. All the Old Testament prophets of him. The law and the prophets and all the ceremonies pointed to him. That promised seed, that Messiah, that Christ who was to come, who was to deliver his people from all their sins through the blood of the cross. To preach the gospel means to preach that Christ as the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. To preach that Christ as the one in whom there is reconciliation, atonement, life, peace with God. And that's why the apostle could say, we preach unto you Christ and him crucified. And therefore the apostle is not ashamed of that gospel. For Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved than that name of Jesus. I am not ashamed of that good news concerning salvation in Christ because that gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What is salvation? Well, beloved, salvation has both a negative and a positive aspect. The salvation from the negative aspect is deliverance. Deliverance from misery. Deliverance from eternal destruction. It does not deliver us from the present misery of this world. We all understand that. It does not, that gospel does not make us physically well. That gospel does not fill our stomachs. That gospel does not deliver us from the affliction of this present time. But that isn't man's true misery. Man's true misery is his sin. 
his death. Man's true misery is that he stands in a wrong relation to the living God, and God is the only and the highest good. God is that for himself, and therefore God always seeks himself and purposes himself and is filled with himself and rejoices in himself. But God is also the highest good for that creature which he originally created in his own image, after his own likeness. And man's misery is, beloved, that he does not acknowledge the living God. He does not know him. Oh, that doesn't mean that he doesn't know anything about him, that he has no knowledge of God whatever. For the apostle explains in this very same chapter that that which is revealed of God is known of men, his wisdom and Godhead and power. They see it. But it means, beloved, that man has no true spiritual, experiential knowledge of God. He does not know God in the knowledge of love and fellowship. And after all, that is life. To know the Lord, to love Him, to serve Him, to have fellowship with Him, that is life for man, beloved. To be His friend's servant, and to serve Him in His covenant, and man, by nature, is in that misery <clears throat> in which he refuses to bow before the living God. He is an enemy of God, filled with enmity against him. He hates God and he loves himself and he seeks himself and purposes himself as the highest and only good. He revels in his sin and makes himself worthy of everlasting destruction, the destruction of hell. And from, to be delivered from that misery and from that everlasting destruction of eternal perdition, beloved, is salvation. In the negative, from the negative point of view, from the positive point of view, beloved, salvation is the experience of the highest good. Of the life of God. The experience of God's fellowship and of his favor and of his love. To stand in relation to him as a friend with a friend and yet as his servant. To know the living God in the knowledge of love. To think his thoughts as he reveals them unto us. To will his will as he makes it known to us. To walk in his ways. To walk with him and talk with him. To hear him call us sons and daughters. 
to call him our father, to know that he dwells in us and that he loves us with an eternal love and that he redeems our soul from destruction, fills us with peace, joy, and life. That is salvation. That salvation now, in this present world, to walk with your God day by day in all your ways, to know that he loves you, to go to him as your Father in heaven, to commune with him in prayer, To feel his presence. To delight in his word. To seek the things of his kingdom. To long for the perfect realization of knowing as we shall be known. Serving him without sin. To live in hope. The hope of the realization of that perfect salvation, that salvation now, that's the effect which the preaching of the gospel has in everyone that believes it. That's what it works. That's what it works every day in the lives of those who receive it by faith, who walk according to it. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I've explained before, beloved, the different meanings of the words, different words that are used for power in Scripture. This is the word dunamis. It's nice if you can remember that word. It's the word from which we get the English word dynamo and dynamite. The dynamite of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It indicates that this power is a great, a tremendous, and explosive power, as it were. An irresistible power. It is the irresistible force according to which God is able to accomplish his will and his purpose. For power is the ability to realize an end, to produce an effect, a desired effect, to accomplish and reach a purpose. That's power. And the gospel is the power of God. It's not a weak, impotent word of man. Its power is the power of the Almighty God. The word of man has no power. Oh, yes, in a sense it does. In a sense, the word of man has some power, yes. Not with a view to salvation, however. 
But when we speak to one another, our word has power too. When you admonish your children, that word has power. It reacts. The word of the master has power. But, beloved, that is not the idea here. The gospel is the power of God. And it, its power is revealed in this, that through that gospel men are delivered from death and destruction and set into everlasting life. That's the evidence of the power of the gospel. It's the power of God. The power is not in the preacher. The power is not in the ability of the preacher to reason. Not in his philosophy. Not in his ability to persuade, perhaps. The power is not at all in him who proclaims that gospel. The power is God's power, which God works through the instrumentality of the gospel. God is the author of it and the source of it. God works it. God constantly works that power. And then we see what a tremendous power it is, beloved. When we say that it is the power of God, because God's power is an unlimited power, is it not? It is an infinite power. A power whereby he is able to accomplish his purpose in all things. And the gospel is that power of God whereby he is able and does accomplish his purpose with a view to salvation. And it is that power because God is pleased to use that gospel as such a power. But you ask, how is that the gospel of Christ a power of God unto salvation? And the answer is, in the first place, beloved, because in that gospel God reveals His Son, Jesus Christ, as the only Savior and as the only way of salvation and the only one through whom men can be saved. Christ is revealed in the gospel. That is the power of God in the first place. In the second place, because in that gospel God reveals his righteousness. As he has established it in the blood of his own son Jesus Christ on his cross as it stands in opposition to all the righteousness of man, which is unrighteousness. As the only basis upon which the ungodly are justified and the sinner is redeemed. It's the power of God because it reveals that righteousness of God in the second place. And in the third place, it is the power of God because God is in that gospel. 
We cannot separate God from his power. God is in it. God works it. God applies his word. Through the preaching of the gospel, he applies that gospel. He applies the power, his power, by his Holy Spirit to the hearts of his elect. redeems them out of death and sin and misery and translates them into light and life and joy and everlasting blessedness. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed the Apostle says, I am not ashamed. Not only is that the power of God unto salvation, that good news concerning salvation in Christ. Not only is that the power of God unto salvation, but that is also the only power. There is no other. There is no other. There is no other means. There is no other way, there is no other power by which men can be saved than the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore that gospel is so very necessary, beloved. Necessary especially in the midst of this needy world. The world has need of the gospel. For the world is indeed a needy world. Before she lies in sin and in death under the wrath of God. That's the proclamation of Scripture. Through the fall of man all fell and all are guilty before God. Without exception. The apostle teaches in Romans 5 verse 12, Wherefore by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And in verse 18 he says, By the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. And again in verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That means, beloved, that through that fall of Adam, every man stands guilty before the living God. A child of wrath, dead in sins and trespasses, who does not no God, who is without hope, without hope in the world, who revels in sin and seeks himself and the things that are of darkness. That's man, beloved. He does not desire to be delivered from his misery and from his death. His prison is his palace. 
And his bondage is his liberty. He loves it. He loves sin as his master. And he serves him willingly with all his heart, with all his mind, and with all his powers. That's man. That's man because of the sin of one man. The sin of Adam. That's the world, beloved. Even though man could desire to deliver himself or could desire to be delivered, there is no way for him in which he can be delivered in himself or even in God's whole creation. All the kings of the earth and all the powers of the armies of nations and all the gold and the silver in the world cannot redeem one soul. There isn't any way for man, for the world, for man by nature to be delivered in and of himself. Therefore, in himself, man is utterly lost, beloved. We too, in ourselves, for we belong to that world, utterly lost, hopeless, and our end is certain destruction. That's the way the apostle looks at the world. A needy world. In need of the gospel. There is no other power. There is no other means of salvation. If man is to be saved, then that gospel must be preached in order that the power of that gospel may work and may realize its purpose. And therefore that gospel must be preached. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel. The world needs that gospel, beloved. I'm speaking now of an objective need. The objective need. Just like a man who is sick. A man who has cancer needs the doctor. Whether that man knows that he has cancer, whether he feels sick or not, doesn't make any difference. If that man has cancer, he needs a doctor. Whether he knows it and doesn't want the doctor, or whether he doesn't know it and goes on in his delusion, it doesn't make any difference objectively that man is in need of a doctor. And, beloved, the world is in need of the gospel. It needs that more than anything. More than anything. For there is no other power that is able to save and to deliver. And therefore the apostle would go into the whole world to preach the gospel. The apostle Paul 
had a passion for souls, beloved. Oh, maybe you don't like that expression. I know it has a certain color to it that we do not like, but it's true nevertheless. He had a passion for souls. He says that he is willing to become all things unto all men if by some means, if by any means, he might save some. He feels that he is a debtor to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He's a debtor. A debtor to every nation. A debtor to every people. A debtor that he owes it to go out and to proclaim that gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. Maybe you ask, did the apostle expect to save the whole world? All beloved ask that question is to answer it. Of course not. No, the apostle did not expect to save the whole world. He did not even expect to save all those who heard the gospel. He didn't expect that. He did not delude himself to believe that he would save anyone of himself. It was the gospel which he proclaimed. And the apostle understood very well, beloved, that in the effect which that gospel would have, he was limited by God's election. He certainly understood that. And it was that very fact that he understood that that made it an incentive to him to go out into the world into the very corners of the world to proclaim the gospel, just exactly because he knew that God had his people in the midst of that needy, guilty, hopeless world that lay in death and word that is worthy of destruction. God had his people in that world. And therefore that gospel must go out in order that through that gospel God may gather his people and may deliver them out of death into life. Not only that, but by that very fact he was also comforted, for he knew that his work was never in vain, that his preaching of the gospel always had its effect, and that God would surely gather his people and cause it to be a power in the hearts of all his own, because it is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone that believeth. Unto everyone that believeth. Beloved, the apostle knew that everyone would not receive that gospel. Oh, some there were that would mock and ridicule. Some there were that would turn a deaf ear. Others would resent it. And again there would be those who would persecute and hate and despise and kill. Oh, he knew that. But that did not deter him. He would preach that gospel nevertheless. 
For he understood that in the preaching of that gospel he was a savor of life unto life, but also a savor of death unto death. For that is always true when the gospel is preached. And so with confidence he could go out and proclaim that gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto everyone that believeth. The gospel does not save all men, beloved. The gospel does not intend to save all men. But the gospel saves the believer. That's what the apostle taught. And that's why the question is for you and me tonight, too. Do we believe? Do we believe tonight? Not have we believed in the past as children of God. Do we believe? It's always the question when the gospel is preached. The gospel creates a crisis, puts us in a crisis. The gospel demands that everyone who hears it consciously chooses a position in respect to it. Either to receive it by faith or to reject it through unbelief. That's unavoidable. Everyone who hears the gospel does assume a position in respect to it. And he cannot help but assume a position in respect to it. That's due to the very nature of the gospel. Because it is the gospel of God. But the gospel does even more than that, beloved. The gospel demands of everyone who hears that preaching of the gospel that he will assume a positive position in respect to it. The gospel demands faith. It demands faith. We read of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, that after John the Baptist had been put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And that's the way the gospel always comes. It demands faith. And it leaves him who rejects that gospel without excuse. And it saves everyone that believes. Why? Why is the believer saved? Is that because faith is meritorious? Or is that because faith is some kind of a ground, a basis upon which we are saved? No, beloved, not at all. We all understand that, do we not? We do not earn anything through faith. Faith is not the ground upon which we are saved. 
The ground of our salvation is Jesus Christ. The power of our salvation is Jesus Christ, always. It's impossible that our faith should ever be the ground, the basis, or that it should ever merit, for faith is not of man, Scripture says, but it is given unto us of grace, and that, beloved, is elective grace. It is given unto us of grace to believe in Jesus Christ. Not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. How is it then that the believer is saved? Because, beloved, through faith God sets us into living contact with that Christ, with that Jesus in whom is all our salvation. So that we live out of him, draw all his benefits and all his blessings out of him, as he comes to us and stands before us and is proclaimed unto us in the gospel of God. So the believer is saved. Saved through faith. Justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And because that gospel demands faith of everyone who hears it, beloved, it puts man in a crisis. It demands an answer to the question, what are you doing with that gospel? What position do you take with a view to that gospel? Do you reject that gospel? Do you throw it far from you when it is proclaimed to you? Then, beloved, there is no hope. There is no hope. For there is no other means of salvation than the way of that gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Do you believe it tonight? Then you are saved. Then you are saved. But, beloved, no one who has heard the gospel can assume a position of neutrality. That's impossible. And if I may digress for just a moment, beloved, I would like to say that when I made a statement a few years ago, a couple of years ago in April, to the effect that God promises every one of you that if you believe you will be saved, I was trying to make clear to you this very fact, this very truth, which I proclaim to you tonight. Certainly I did not mean by that expression 
that God wants to save everybody, or that God even intends to save everyone who hears the gospel, but that it depends upon man's own will whether or not he will be saved. Beloved, I have never preached such Arminianism to you. I didn't mean that. I meant, exactly as I have said tonight, that anyone who hears the gospel is put in that tension and in that crisis because God proclaims to him that he saves the believer. And when a man rejects that gospel through unbelief, his destruction is the fault of his own, his unbelief is the fault of his destruction. That's what the confessions teach. And while I mentioned that, beloved, I would like to mention also another statement that I made to the effect that conversion is a prerequisite to enter into the kingdom. And I know that that does not directly relate to the subject this evening. But I would like to state this too, to avoid and take away all misunderstanding if there be such. That I did not teach, did not intend to teach by that statement that the natural man who is held in the power of darkness must convert himself before he can enter into the kingdom of God. I say again, beloved, I have never preached such Arminianism to you. I meant to make plain in that sermon that as we daily subjectively enter into the kingdom of God, we stand before that necessity of humbling ourselves, turning from the way of sin, to enter constantly, progressively, more fully into that kingdom. In my opinion, beloved, the things which I said in that sermon, in both those sermons, guarded against any misinterpretation of those statements. But I want to say this for my own sake, because I want no misunderstanding. I am only a weak and a sinful man. And if I did not make myself clear, and if in some way I gave occasion to draw a wrong conclusion, I'm sorry. I wouldn't want you to draw a wrong conclusion from my preaching. But I mean to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. It's a glorious gospel. And that gospel we may preach with confidence. Paul did. Paul preached it with confidence because he knew that he had something that the world needed. 
Even if the world despised it and rejected it, he knew that the world needed it. And he preached it to the whole world. And the church is called to preach that gospel to the whole world far and wide. If I am not to be ashamed of something, beloved, especially if I represent it, If I have an article which I represent and I'm not to be ashamed of it, then in the first place it must be something new and something timely. In the second place it must be something useful. And in the third place it must do what I say that it will. If that article does not live up to those three things, beloved, I'm ashamed of it. And the gospel lives up to that. There's nothing like it new. Eye hath not seen, and ear hath not heard, and it hath never arisen in the heart of man. The things which God hath prepared for them that love him. New. Wisdom of God that makes foolish the wisdom of the world. That's the gospel. Useful. There is no other name under heaven given whereby men must be saved than the name which that gospel proclaims. There is no power in the whole world by which men are saved but the power of God in the gospel. And will it do what it says? Oh yes, it will. It saves. It saves the believer. It saves him day by day. It saves him to the uttermost. And that's why, beloved, we need that gospel every Sunday again. We need it. Because what is true in the absolute sense is also true in the relative sense. In the measure that the gospel is preached and men... Do not heed it and reject it through unbelief in that measure they are hardened and their condemnation increases. And in the measure that that gospel is preached unto us as the church of Jesus Christ, and by the grace of God we receive it through faith. In that measure, beloved, that power of God works in us unto salvation, renewing us day by day leading us in the way that leads to everlasting glory. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, unto everyone that believeth, not for me, not for you to boast in. If we glory, beloved, let it not be in this that that gospel has come to us and saved us as though it were us in distinction of others. But he that glorieth, let him glory in that Lord which that gospel proclaims and the cross which it sets forth. In him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.
We thank thee, our Father in heaven, for thy word. O God, so apply thy word unto our hearts, that we may experience the power thereof through a living faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Dismiss us with thy blessing. Lead us in thy way and bring us hereafter to live with thee in thy perfect covenant and fellowship for Jesus' sake. Amen.